the reading for this morning will be taken from 1 Kings 3. It'll be taken from the life of Solomon. And you'll be able to find 1 Kings 3 on page 387 of your book of praise. Pardon me, you'll be able to find that on page 387 of your pew Bibles. Now, Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father, David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commands as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if someone came up to you and said that you could have anything you could possibly want, what would you ask for? You might be thinking, well, the average person doesn't have a whole lot to offer. Okay, fair enough. But if that's too difficult to imagine, what if it was maybe our mayor here in Owen Sound 
Or even the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, who has to say to you that you could have anything you could possibly want. Or for you kids, most of you know the story of Aladdin and the lamp. He rubs it and a genie comes out and gives him three wishes. What would you ask for? Anything in the world. What would you ask for? Some of you clever ones might ask for more wishes right off the bat. Fair enough. But what about after that? Would you wish for candy, for a car, a nicer house, a sibling you can get along with better than your brother who you got into a, a fight with this morning? You've been offered anything in the world. What would you ask for? Today, we've seen the very same thing happen in front of us. Solomon is at Gibeon. He's just offered a thousand burnt offerings before the Lord. And that night, the Lord appears to him in a dream. Now, God would more often appear to people in dreams or visions in this time period to talk with them. You can see that happening with Abraham, with Jacob, with the prophets. All throughout history, you find that happening. But in those times, he would often have a message for them. There would be something that the Lord would tell them or would promise them. But in this case, the Lord does something that he does very rarely in the Bible. He asks Solomon a question. Ask, he says, what shall I give you? This is a question that we find more often in the, New, in the Old Testament, but not one that we find coming from the lips of God. It's a question that we most often find coming from kings or emperors. Think of King Herod when he says in Mark 6 to his daughter, what shall I give you? Up to half my kingdom, it's yours. Or in Esther 5, the Persian king says to Queen Esther, ask whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, I will give it to you. This is something that's meant on the part of the ruler to display his pleasure with someone, to display absolute generosity. But in the average case, rulers would make promises that were limited with their extent. Regardless of what they promised, they could only give so much. Here, on the other hand, it's different. Here, it's God who is offering It's God offering a gift to Solomon. And God's no earthly ruler to have secret strings attached. He has no limits on his offer. Ask, he says, what shall I give you? In response to this question, Solomon asks for wisdom. And so we will see a request for wisdom answered. We'll see, first of all, wisdom flowing from mercy, wisdom abounding, And finally, wisdom's effects. The opening words of our passage here in 1 Kings 3 show that wisdom was something that Solomon desperately needed. There we read the words, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. And he brought her to the city of David. Now, why is this such a big deal? 
God had warned the people very strongly against the intermarriage with the nations around them. He had said in Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 and following, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you utterly. God had a very real concern about the effects of marriage to women of foreign nations on his people. In this case, he explicitly rejected the seven nations that the people would be conquering. But we see in passages like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi that all marriage outside of the covenant was rejected on the same principle. If you married away, God said, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. God had put in place a command for the people not only to protect them, but to imprint his desire for holiness on them. To impress on them the fact that he was their God and they were his people. That he had chosen them out of all the nations and he had set them apart. A second thing that we can see is that Solomon as king, well, he was to have a copy of the law written especially for him. We can see this in the same Uh, in Deuteronomy 17. The same chapter of Deuteronomy 17 also has other instructions for the king. It says, He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you will not return that way again. The reason for this was that Israel wasn't to look to anyone else for help. To turn to Egypt their slaves and captors for the aid that they ought to have turned to God for was a rejection of his love and care. Solomon, by taking this alliance from the king of Egypt, was challenging this. God had warned them not to rely on human aid, especially aid from Egypt. And yet Solomon chose to establish a peace treaty. He chose to establish peace and safety through human wisdom, joining his country with the greatest power in the region through a marriage alliance. Now, how often doesn't that happen to us? That we do know the right way to go, but we choose to go in a different direction. We know the spirit of the law, but we bend the rules in order to make them better apply to human wisdom. Solomon was relying heavily on human wisdom, human smarts to rule his kingdom. And these two examples were reflections of that. Thirdly, Solomon allowed and encouraged the people in their willingness to sacrifice at the high places. Yes, God had revealed one place for the people to worship at, at the tabernacle, And this is probably why he went to offer sacrifices at Gibeon, because that was where the tabernacle was for a while. 
But it was easier for him to work with the will of the people. The people sacrificed at all of the different high places. And so Solomon said, you know, let's uh, encourage that. At least they're serving God, right? Despite that, we read, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. It's an easy trap to fall into, isn't it? When we don't find ourselves consulting with God on a day-to-day basis, when life carries on, then it's easy to focus on human wisdom, on our own wisdom and the world's thoughts of what's right. We may love the Lord, but even so, it can be easy in our lives to relegate this divine wisdom to a back corner and suggest that's all good and well in theory, but this is real life. It's not reasonable to ask me to take the more literal road every time. It's going to hurt. It's simply not the brightest way to do life. It's easier to listen to the wisdom of self-help gurus than the Word of God. It's easier to turn our backs on brothers and sisters in Christ who offend us than deal with them in Christ-like ways. It's easier to use slightly crooked corner-cutting techniques in business because that's what everyone else is doing. When something's set off the pulpit or when friends and neighbors say things that are based in the Word of God but they're too difficult to handle, we would rather not deal with it. It might seem like a less wise decision or one that doesn't line up with our desires. In such things, it's easier to lean on someone who's tangibly there, someone who we can see who seems to be getting results, who's succeeded in the past, and who does things that line up with what we ourselves want. It's easier to lean on someone like that than it is to lean on God from a human perspective. And this is a situation that so many of us find ourselves in. The wisdom of the world is alluring because from a human perspective, in the short term, it seems to work. And yet God says this wisdom isn't wisdom at all. Because this wisdom is grounded not in recognizing God as the ultimate source of wisdom, but in leaning on ourselves. When we don't recognize God as the ultimate source of wisdom in our lives, what's the result? Foolishness, says God. We read in Psalm 53, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool has removed God from the equation and has said, I want to do it my way. We may love the Lord, but where we remove Him from the equation where we bar him out of an aspect of our lives, we're opening the way to foolishness. And that's a very real danger. And yet, despite all of this, God didn't reject Solomon. Although he had every reason to, God had patience with him. And the night that he sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings to the Lord, out of his love for the Lord, the Lord appeared to him and said, Ask, what shall I give you? For all of Solomon's foolishness, regardless of what he truly deserved, God chose to have mercy on him and shower his goodness on him. That's often the way with God, isn't it? 
when we're so far from deserving his grace, often that's when he pours out his grace in its fullest measure. And it's then that he gives us more than we can ask for. When we come before God needing wisdom and asking for it, he grants it. And he grants it in a way that's far greater than we could ever ask or imagine. And this brings us to our second point. Solomon's request begins with a recognition of faithfulness on God's part. You can see that in verse 6. Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. God has shown mercy, he says. You have shown great mercy to your servant David. And the word that's used here is chesed. It's a Hebrew word that reflects God's undeserved loving kindness. In fact, it is often translated as loving kindness. But in this setting, you could say merciful kindness. This very same word is used again. You have continued this great kindness, this great chesed, for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Solomon asks for wisdom to guide the nation rightly. He doesn't ask for anything personal, he doesn't ask for gain. He recognizes his own shortcomings and his lack of wisdom. He says, You have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. He's not actually a little child at this time. He's probably in his early 20s. But he recognizes his shortcomings. Since God has appointed Solomon to rule in David's place, God now needs to give him all that is necessary for carrying out this responsibility if he's to rule wisely. He needs to lean on this mercy of God, on this loving kindness of God. He doesn't base his request in himself. He doesn't base his request in his thousand burnt offerings. He bases his request in God's mercy and God's loving kindness. And God is pleased with that request. Although Solomon doesn't deserve it, God grants him what he asks for. Not only does he promise that, but he promises much more. He promises Solomon wisdom, riches, and honor. And a promise that if he is obedient, he will rule a long time. And all of that comes out of that foundation of covenant faithfulness that he has shown. That foundation of chesed. Now that's a point that should be of great interest to us as we look at this passage. Why? Because of the fact that that word is God's covenant It's a representation of God's covenant love. This is a great covenant word. A word that's used throughout the Old Testament to speak of God's mercy in light of His covenant love. Why is this so important? There is a scene in the famous musical Les Miserables which illustrates this somewhat. The setting of the musical is in the time of the French Revolution. 
And you have the character Jean Valjean who escaped from prison and was put on the straight and narrow by a priest. He becomes very wealthy after a while and becomes a factory owner. Now, one of his workers gets unjustly tossed out onto the street by a foreman and suffers tragically before coming to the brink of death. And that's where she meets up with Jean Valjean. It's a touching scene in the musical. As she's dying, he recognizes the enormity of what his lack of proper oversight of his factory has cost this woman. And so as she dies, he gives her this promise, a promise that he'll take care of her daughter and raise her. And he does. With tender care and devotion, he raises this girl as his own daughter. In fact, he ends up putting his life on the line to rescue the future husband of his adopted daughter. Now, this is not the main story in this uh, novel, by, in this musical, by any stretch. But it's very touching all the same. And the reason it's so touching is because it represents to us the faithfulness and devotion that can flow through the generations with someone. That it can be something that's not only a one-time thing, not only an act of kindness, but it's something that is an intergenerational thing, a promise that's made to a mother, mother that has an impact on her daughter. Not because the daughter deserved anything, but because of the faithfulness of the one who gave the promise. That's the kind of faithfulness and steadfast love that's wrapped into the word chesed. It's something that transcends generations and something that flows out of a bond that's made by a promise. It's not something that's earned, but it comes from the graciousness of the giver. When it's shown among men, it's a beautiful thing. When shown by God, it becomes awe-inspiring. Solomon is facing this very same bond, this very same grace. God gave a promise to David, his father, that he would have a son sitting on his throne. He promised him that he would be there for his son and that he would guide him. There's nothing that Solomon himself had done, but the Lord had promised to provide for him. And so he does provide for him much more than Solomon could ask for. Now at this point, I want you to take a step back for a moment and think about that question from the beginning. Think about what you ask for when you come before God in prayer. We have the opportunity to ask for anything we want. What do we ask for? It's very easy to ask God for material things. It's very easy to ask Him for a promotion, to ask Him for advancement in life. But how often do we ask Him for things which flow out of this loving kindness, this covenant faithfulness, which are in accordance with who he is, which are for the best for his people, which are for the best for his kingdom. How often do we ask 
for something like wisdom. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We live in a day and age when this wisdom is desperately needed. So much of life is dependent on looking to the Lord every day for help. And we ought not to take lightly how important this wisdom can be, how much we need guidance through life. Sure, we don't need to rule a nation. Sure, we don't need to fend off political rivals. But we do need to know how to raise our children, how to deal with our employees, how to deal with our siblings, how to deal with campers, how to deal with those who are under our care. We need God in all of that. Do we ask him for wisdom in that? When we do ask for wisdom and when we do submit our lives to the fear of God and wisdom's rule, amazing things happen. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Perhaps life may not get easier as such. We'll still go through difficult circumstances. It's not a guarantee that they'll suddenly up and disappear. We'll still have to deal with hardships. But when we ask God for wisdom, we'll have something to lean on through that. We'll have someone who is greater, who will look out for us, who does that out of that foundation of his loving kindness. We don't have to bear the burden of the weight of life by ourselves anymore but we'll be taking on a yoke that is light. We'll be having a burden that's shared by one who is greater than us. And that leads us into our final point. We can see in Solomon's life how this wisdom pans out. This request for wisdom pans out. The most vivid Example is given right after our particular passage in 1 Kings 3. There are two women who come before him and they stood before him. And it says here, one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house and I gave birth while she was in the house. And then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had borne. Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. And thus they spoke before the king. You have these two women who are in the throne room of the king, and they're shouting back and forth, and Solomon has to make a decision. And the king says, 
The one says, this is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, Oh my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. While he walked obediently with the Lord, this wisdom spread and his kingdom flourished. His kingdom grew and knowledge of him went throughout the nations. People could see this is the man who has had wisdom granted to him from God. This is the man we can look up to. They sent envoys to him. Even the queen of Sheba came up to him to ask him questions and to speak to him. While he was living in obedience to God, he was blessed with this wisdom. However, Solomon also showed his failure. He wasn't the perfect king. He wasn't the one that Israel ultimately needed. He relied on human wisdom. He got many wives, many foreign pagan wives who led him astray. He made many decisions that were for personal advancement that led him astray. These decisions weren't based in wisdom that came from God. He was an imperfect king. He was a reminder to the people of Israel that there was one who was higher that there was one who still needed to come. We can see for ourselves, too, that this is just one stage in redemptive history. That there is need for a better, more perfect, and more wise king. All the riches and honor in the world aren't enough. Solomon recognized this. There's debate as to whether or not Ecclesiastes was a book that was written by Solomon. Personally, I'm inclined to think it was, but even if it wasn't, I'm sure that he could have sympathized with the words at the end. He says, I've tried everything. I've tried all of life. I've had men, women, and men. I've had women and song, and entertainment. I've built huge projects. I've had manservants and maidservants by the hundreds, by the thousands. But at the end of the day, that meant nothing. At the end of the day, just this remains. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. To lean on God and to look to God. All the riches and honor of this world are not enough. This is a reminder to us too that we need to look 
beyond ourselves and beyond this world, not relying on human wisdom. We need to look to Christ as our ultimate source of wisdom. We need to look to our Lord who equips us as prophets, priests, and kings. Our Lord Jesus Christ isn't just one who has granted wisdom. He is the one who became wisdom for us. We read that in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, but of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. We live in a world that so desperately needs wisdom. We can see how greatly it's divided. Maybe most vividly we can see it in the actions this past week that took place in Charlottesville with white supremacists on one side and the group Antifa on the other with people screaming at each other, with a white supremacist driving his car into a crowd, injuring many and killing a person. The white supremacist group spoke about how there was a need to unite the right against fascism. Sorry, unite the right. And then Antifa spoke about the need to unite against fascism. Both of them are speaking about unity. Both of them are speaking about bringing people together while screaming slogans at each other. And we can see that slowly moving north as well. Greater divisions, greater anger between factions. People calling for unity, but people driving each other further apart. There is no single move here that can decide the action. It's not like Solomon where he can hold up the baby and say, cut the baby in two, and then the one, side, uh, the one side says, please spare him. It's like, okay, well, clearly she's the mother. That was a single action that could happen that could take care of it. But there's so much more wisdom needed in such a situation. And that wisdom can be found in Christ alone. Christ as wisdom incarnate. The gospel is what unites us truly. The gospel is what declares to us that we are all one blood. We are made in the image of God and we are made to serve and love Him. Let us look to our Lord Jesus Christ for wisdom and let us share Him with all that the foolishness of this world, the stumbling block, can become the wisdom that unites us all under the rule of one King, King Jesus. Amen.